Welcome to It's No Fluke, your weekly podcast about the untold stories and uncharted waters in culture and creativity. I'm your host, Jeff Barrett, Shorty Award winner and real-time Academy member. Each season, we explore a range of topics with the current and next big names in digital storytelling, featuring diverse voices from creators, brands, and great minds of our time. Today, buckle up, because it's time for a wild ride with Peter Shankman. The New York Times calls him a rock star who knows everything about social media and then some. Disney, Google, Adobe, SAP, and three dozen more of the biggest companies in the world work with him to guide customer experience and the neurodiverse economy. He's a six-time best-selling author, including the insanely popular Faster Than Normal, which is still the definitive guide to understanding neurodiversity. He created and sold Help a Reporter Out in just three years, but those are accolades. The real Peter is even more fascinating. He gives out 200,000 plus airline miles in a year to send families home for the holidays. He sleeps in his workout clothes so he can jump on the Peloton at 4 a.m. He's never once turned down one of my crazy ideas, including being on this podcast. He's one of the most fascinating people I know, and I'm excited for you to meet him if you haven't already. This season, we're proud to partner with Wave. Do you know seven out of 10 creators don't have enough money set aside for a financial crisis? It's super important to have the right tools and insights to stay in control. And let's be honest, most of us did not become money managers. So let the experts do the work. Wave is affordable, one-stop money management for creators. It streamlines invoicing, payments, payroll, all in one place, keeping you in complete control. Plus, Wave is offering a free personal 20-minute session with one of their bookkeeping coaches when you create a free account. A normally $99 cost, Wave wants to make expert advice accessible for creators and take the fear and intimidation out of bookkeeping taxes. Spots are limited, so don't wait. Visit waveapps.com slash nofluke to claim your free coaching session. That's W-A-V-E-A-P-P-S dot com slash N-O-F-L-U-K-E. That's waveapps.com slash nofluke. Hey, Peter, what, when you're thinking about being a neurodiverse child, right? When did you have the recognition that you were neurodiverse? I didn't have the recognition I was neurodiverse probably to my mid thirties. I knew that there was something different about me. Um, I said I was five, you know, different though was, um, Usually when I was growing up in the seventies and eighties in New York city, that was different was pretty much equated to wrong. Yeah. Right. Not by my parents, but by teachers, by, by schools, you know, it was very much a sit down, sit like everyone else. Don't move. Um, uh, you know, and that was a, uh, was tough. I mean, it took, you know, once I did get diagnosed, um, I then had to start the whole process of unlearning all those things I felt were wrong with me um, and, and understanding that they weren't wrong with me. They're actually um, benefits, but yeah, yeah it, was, talk, it was a bitch. Yeah. And you talk a lot about the benefits. What do you think are the biggest benefits of having ADHD? I mean, where does one start? There are so many. I, <laughs> I've started and sold three companies before I was 40. Um, I've written six best-selling books majority of which I've written on airplanes. Um, True. I can go for a skydive, land, throw my gear in the corner, pull out my laptop and write 10,000 words in 30 minutes. It's, 
about knowing how your brain works and how it's different than a neurotypical brain and taking advantage of those gifts. Um, uh, I try not to start my day without exercise. If I don't exercise first thing in the morning, I don't get the same dopamine response, serotonin response, adrenaline response that I get when I do work out. And so I know what that's like. So that means that, you know, I'm up as early as 4am to get an hour or two on the bike before my day starts. And it's, it's one of those things where, where, you know, oh my God, you go to, you you wake up at 4am every day. Is that that worth it? I'm like, totally worth it. You know, the, the alternative is not being as on as I could be. I'm a single dad. Um, and I have a daughter who, who, when she was as young as she's 10 now, when she was four, she recognized the difference between the days daddy rode his bike and the days daddy didn't. So Mm. it really comes down to knowing thyself and knowing what works for me. Um, when I put what works for me together with doing the right things, I am pretty much unstoppable. And, you know, I can be, uh, I could be doing one thing for 14 hours, you know, and not realize that 14 hours has passed. I'm so deep in the zone and that's amazing. I mean, every book I've written has been written like that. I'll literally sit down and just start writing. Um, uh, I wrote my latest book, a children's book. I wrote in about 90 minutes um, on an airplane. And so it, it really comes down to embracing the fact that you're different, knowing why you're different, and then knowing how to use those differences for good. I think you're able to write quickly too, because you're not burdened by perfectionism, right? It's not so much not burdened by perfectionism, but I mean, I'm, I'm subscribed to the Hemingway theory, which he always said, write drunk, get it sober. Yes. Right. So I like just to get words on paper. I can edit them and make them look beautiful whenever I want. But to get the stuff on paper is 95% of the battle easily. Yeah. And getting that idea, right? If there are a lot of things in a faster brain, getting that idea out when it's there before you lose it is probably imperative. Yeah. I have a ton of tech tools I use that when I do come up with a good idea or a good quote or something like that, I immediately get it to write down. Um, I don't allow it to, uh, to, to disappear. You know, it's funny, like people think about peak times to work out or peak times to do things. I don't think we have a lot of good discussion about peak times to get work done or have creative thought, right? But I think for everyone, there is a peak time to do that, right? Is that a process and kind of recognizing when your peak time was? Yeah, I mean, I, I was never a morning person growing up. And then when I when I hit my late 20s, I discovered the power of the morning. And And you know, it's funny. I'm not that morning person who says to everyone, oh, you got to be a morning person too. Oh, fuck it. Do what you want, man. You know, <laughs> if, if your best time is between 1 and 3 a.m. before you go to bed, that's great. Mine yeah. is, you know, my best time is 4 a.m. to, 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 to 6.30. So to do that, you know, I have to make sure that basically you make time for what you love and who you love. That's it. End of story. Um, if I want to know, if I want to make sure that I'm doing the best I can. I know that for me that happens in the morning. And so how do you get up at 4 a.m.? My God, you must be so tired. Well, no, I go to sleep at 8 p.m. Yeah. And people think I'm crazy, but it works for me. I mean, my daughter goes down around 8. I'm probably asleep by 8.30 every night. And because of that, when the, when the alarm goes off, when my shades automatically come up at like, you know, 3.45 a.m., it doesn't bother me. And I'm up and I'm not exhausted because I – 
did the plan that was supposed to work, you know, and it's not every night. I mean, I try to do it every night, but there are times, you know, yeah, I went out to dinner last night um, with my girlfriend and we had dinner and we had a late dinner and, and you know, I didn't probably get home till 11. So I didn't wake up at 4am, like 5.30 or 6 o'clock and I worked out then, but it's about knowing yourself and it's about understanding what's important. I look at it, I use a term called playing the tape forward, um, which essentially means um, if I do or don't do this next thing, how am I going to feel in 12 hours? Hmm. Am I going to regret it? Am I going to be happy? How am I going to feel that I did this? And, and the answer I get from that allows me to, to make the right decisions in present time. Right. Okay. If I don't work out, tonight's going to come. I probably wouldn't have had as good a day. Will I regret not getting out of bed and getting on the bike? Yes. Okay. Let's do it then. Um, I try to eliminate choice. You know, I go to sleep in my gym clothes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which sounds crazy, but when you wake up and you're in a pair of bike shorts and your bike is eight inches next to your bed, inch away from your bed, it's kind of hard to not get on the bike. Yeah. Like, what am I going to take off my gym clothes that I put on last night just to go in the shower? No, I'm going to work out. And so it's about getting rid of obstacles and eliminating the choice so that you do what you know is best for you, even if you don't want to do it. Yeah, no, I mean, everybody has obstacles. And like we have these conversations with ourselves, whether it's diet, a million different things on, you know, what we should do, what we shouldn't do. Um, when did you start recognizing routine was helpful? Rob, so, so after I sold Help Reporter out in 2010, mm -hmm. um, I had a lot of time to sort of sit and try to understand myself and try to figure out why I could do things like start and sell companies in three years, but couldn't really uh, make a relationship work, you know, Yeah. or things like that. And, and over time, that led to my sort of learning about myself and processing myself a lot better. And once I did that, I started learning about... Um, you know, what, what makes me good, what makes me bad, what makes me do well, what makes me not do well. And I was able to, to use that and sort of learn, really invest in myself, right? And understand that, okay, when you do this, this, and this, you tend to have a good day. When you don't do this, this, and this, you don't. How can you make it so that's a routine? How can you make it so that's a process? I got really into um, Internet of Things. My entire apartment is wired. Um, I don't have to touch anything. Every room I walk in, lights go on, I leave, lights go off. Um, mm -hmm. my shades come up at 3.45 AM. My bedroom lights start coming up at 4.15. Everything is automatically set so that I don't have to think about it. The less I have to think about, the better I can do. My, it might sound crazy, my, my closet um, is actually organized into two sides and they're labeled. And the sides say office slash travel and there's t-shirt and jeans or speaking slash TV and it's button down shirt, jacket and jeans. That's it. Yeah. My suits, my vest, my sweaters, all that stuff is in my daughter's closets. Because if I had to wake up every morning and look at everything in my apartment, and, oh my God, that sweater I wear today, that sweater, I remember that sweater, Larry, but that sweater, I wonder how she's doing. I should look her up. It's three hours later. I'm naked in the living room on Facebook. I haven't left the house. Yeah. So you put together these processes that work for you and you know, you can call them routine, you can call them automation, whatever, but whatever they are, it's what works for you. Well, it's like and, you're making the menu smaller, right? Exactly. And look, I'm the first person to say that, that I am not any stretch of imagination perfect at all. Um, I have days where I go completely off the rails. I have days where nothing happens, where I don't work out, where I eat like shit, where I do, you know, and it's, it's, that's called, that's just life. There's, you know, it, it that's part of yeah. being human. There are 8 billion of us. We have, we have cookies. Um, but I know 
the key is having a bad day is different than milking it and having a bad month. Mm -hmm. What can I do every morning to make sure that I don't have that, that, that if I screwed up yesterday, I can fix today and go back on track. And that's the key. Yeah. So you have things that you can kind of put in a hard reset. Uh -huh. so, but back when you were a kid, 70s, 80s, New York, and you were in school and, you know, this kind of ties back into Boy with a Faster Brain, what would have been better ways to teach and what are better ways right now to teach and foster, um, you know, neurodiverse, neurodiverse children? <clears throat> back then there weren't. Back then, yeah. though, again, we'll sit down and you're in the class. And... Mm -hmm. I see, I go into schools today and I talk because I, you know, I have this new book, the children's book, The Boy with the Faster Brain. And so I go into schools and I talk about this book and I, I read to the kids and I see what classes are doing now, what schools, what public schools are doing now. They're creating um, neurodiversity sections within each classroom, right? Where kids can go, they can, um, they can, um, If they're if they're feeling like they're starting to lose it, they can go to the back of the room. They can do push-ups. They can do sit-ups. They can they can do squats. They can just deep breathe. Whatever they need to do, they're not mm -hmm. tied to their desk. The reason that schools put kids in rows and in chairs, one right behind each other, as opposed to like say in a semicircle or together or whatever, is because in the 1700s, one-room schoolhouses had no room, and so you yeah. had to sit in rows. That was the the way they could get the most kids into the, the classroom, you know, just because something was done a certain way in the past doesn't mean it needs to be done the same way today. And so we are starting to learn that and we're starting to realize that we don't need to sit there and do the same thing, which might not be useful anymore. might not be helpful. We can change that. Um, one of my favorite stories in the whole world is, is of the, um, the baboons. The zookeeper gets five baboons. He puts them in a room or puts them in a cage. And one day he ties up a bunch of bananas at the top of the of the cage and he puts a ladder there and over a couple of hours one of the baboons notices the bananas there's the ladder bananas ladder bananas ladder, and he walks over to the ladder and he climbs it up climbs up the ladder and he gets the gets the 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 bananas and starts eating them and he's happy as he's doing that the other four baboons get hit with uh, ice cold water from a fire hose mm. and they're all like what the fuck we were just sitting here like doing baboon shit why are you doing this and it happens. The other baboon eats all the bananas. As soon as he's done eating the bananas, he comes back down the ladder. The fire hose stops. Next day, same thing happens. That one baboon goes up, gets new bananas. The other four get hit with a fire hose. By the third day, they start to realize, hey, every time this asshole goes up and gets his bananas, we get hit with a fire hose. So he starts to – third day, the, the, the baboon starts to go for the, up the ladder, and the other four baboons grab him and beat the shit out of him. Right? And they don't let him go up the ladder. And same thing the next day. And so by the fifth day, all the baboons know not to go up the ladder. So then the zookeeper one by one starts taking out all five of the original baboons. He, he replaces one of the original baboons with a new baboon who immediately lunges for the ladder to get the bananas and gets the shit kicked out of him. He has no idea why. The second day they replace another baboon. Again, he lunges for the bananas. Now the other four start. And he does, does this every day until all five baboons are brand new, none of whom have ever been squirted with ice cold water but all of whom know not to climb the ladder, but they don't know why. And what's the logic here? Well, that's the way we've always done it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They have no idea why they can't climb the ladder to get, they just know that when they do, they get the crap kicked out of them. And, and so that's, that's a, a, a wonderful story in the respect of, you know, 
just because things were done a certain way for years doesn't mean they need to be done. The other one is, is you know, the classic story of the of the of the mom who's making a meatloaf with with her with her kid, and she she before she puts the meatloaf in the pan, she cuts off a quarter inch on either side, and the kids watch. And she says, "Mommy, why do we do that?" Because I don't know. Your grandmother did. It. Let's 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 call grandma. She goes, "Grandma, why do we do this?" Because I don't know. Great grandma did it. Let's call your great grandma. Call the great grandma. Like in a retirement home. She goes, "Why does I don't know why you guys do it? I did it because I had a small oven." You know, it's 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 great stories like that, but but it's so true. You know, just because something's always been done that way doesn't necessarily mean it's the best way to do it. And and it's interesting because when you're in school, when you're growing up in school, public, private, whatever, um, that's not the mindset a lot of schools want you to have, right? I mean, granted, it's changing now. Like my daughter goes to a wonderful school uh, in Midtown Manhattan where where they want you to think for yourselves. But when I was growing up, you know, I, I spent a lot of time growing up on a place called Staten Island, and if Staten Island had its own, like if it ever seceded from New York City. Uh, it would have its own state and it would have its own license plate. And the license plate would, the motto would read Staten Island, where if you're different, that's wrong. And so I was, I did not do well in Staten Island because I would come up with all these random ideas and, you know, promptly get knocked the hell down by the teachers and, and the other students and, you know, was constantly in trouble. And it was just because I was thinking differently. And every time I'd get yelled at for like cracking a joke in class or making the kids laugh, what I didn't realize at the time, it took me 30 years to learn it. I was, I was making a joke because every time the kids laughed, I got a dopamine hit. And the dopamine allowed mm -hmm. me to focus and sit down and study. So, you know, it was sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. It makes perfect sense now that I'm a corporate keynote speaker. Yeah. Right? I love being in front of 25,000 people. That's like, that's like a dopamine high for me all, all day. You, uh, you hit it, hit the nail on the head for me because that's what I've always used. I've always used humor to, for those exact situations. Um, I was a kid in the early nineties that was told oh crap, you're different. We don't know what to do with you. The difference is that instead of having to assimilate, my mom just pulled me out and homeschooled me. So, you know, I was just pulled out of culture, which is funny because it would work great for me because every morning was, here's what you have to do. If it takes you 30 minutes or six hours, doesn't matter. You figure it out. And so I, you know, worked that way as a child, still work that way now. Weirdly, like when you're talking about getting on the bike, I will be on the bike dictating notes while playing NBA 2K23. And I have yep. to be doing all of those things yep. to somehow be processing. And people will watch me or people in my life and will ask, why all of that chaos around you? I'm like, no, that's not chaos. That's just helping me kind of center things. But, you know, being able to work in a situation that allows me to, like, routine, can't do it. Right. All these, all these things, like I bristle at the idea of routine. Right. So when you're telling me the story of the baboons, I'm like, yeah, no, I feel that. Um, when, when you started getting into business, um, you know, in, in way back before you even sold your first company, um, kind of how did you assimilate into organizations? So when I worked for, um, <laughs> when I worked for, other people. I had one job, basically one real job in my life. I worked for um, America Online. And that was great because they let us work any way we wanted, as long as we got the job done. They were very ahead of their time. Um, then I moved back to New York and I got a job at a magazine. And we had 8.30 a.m. meetings and 9 a.m. editorial meetings and 10.30 a.m. check-ins and 11 a.m. this and 12.30 media. And I'm like, wow, I, this is Russia. And I quit. Um, <laughs> I've done the same. I learned really early on, right, and thank God I did, that I don't play well with others. And I don't necessarily pay well, play well in a 
in a world that is as rigid as most office jobs were. Yeah. I remember starting my own company and telling my parents, that, like, they're like, what do you know about starting a company? What I said, I don't really. I said, and if it fails, I think, no, actually I said when it fails, not if it fails. I said when, <laughs> when. it fails. On the first one, yes, when. I'll just get a job. Yeah. It's going to be 25 years this October and I haven't had to get a job yet, which is pretty cool. That that's amazingly cool. And that's interesting Like you're talking about, you don't play well with others. I mean, you can light up a room and you can command the attention of a room and you can play well with others, but yes, it's more so the rigidity of the system, right? It's bristling at, I don't want to be told to be at this spot. That's not going to be how I perform the best. Um, when you were designing companies and, you know, culture, um, did you keep that in mind for other people? So one of the things that for me, I never had companies that had a lot of employees. I think the most employees that I had were like eight. And yeah. I wasn't aware enough back when I ran that company. This is my first company in PR firm. I wasn't aware enough to, to know what kind of people to hire. I was a terrible manager. I still am. Um, <laughs> But what I'm what I'm smart at is hiring people who are very good at things I suck at. I've had the same assistant going on 15 years now, 16 years. And um, when I was getting ready to come on this call, she sent me a text. She goes, just FYI, it's audio and video. If you're not already wearing a shirt, put one on. And <laughs> she knows me so well. Right. You, should, you should share what her title is because it's great. Yeah, it's she's the calming influence to Peter Shankman. Yeah. Um, she took away right access to my calendar six months after she started working for me. And I remember I tried, tried to put something in my in my calendar. And and she goes, um, she goes, uh, I'm like, it's not working. Like, something's wrong. She goes, yeah. She goes, I, I took I took right access away to your calendar. I'm like, excuse me? She's like, yeah, you're not allowed to. She's like, when you um, want to do something, you ask me. I said, I said That's, why? She goes, well, you booked two dinners on the same night. I said, that's not that big of a deal. You're kind of sure. You know, yeah. in the ass. I mean, and she looked at me. I mean, never she looked at me. She said, Peter, you booked two dinners on the same night on separate continents. You're done. Ooh. And I have not had access to my calendar in that many years, but it works. It's supposed to be that way. Um, because I don't have to worry about screwing up. I'm terrible at things that I'm terrible at. And I know that I'm great at things that I'm great at. And as long as I have the, the wherewithal, to understand that and also the temerity to accept that, right? I know a lot of people who have screwed themselves because they sit there and they say, hey, I can get this. I can do this. Mm -hmm. I don't need anyone else to do this for me. But that's not how it works, right? You need to know what you're good at. Yeah, what's the line between resilience, hubris, and stubbornness, right? I think that's a really good question. I 
I'm smart enough, and I'm not very smart, but I'm smart enough in this instance to understand that allowing Megan to do things that I'm terrible at is not a loss for me, is not a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of intelligence. Because if I am able to let her do these things, mm-hmm. then I know that they're going to get done correctly. And if they're going to get done correctly, I'm not going to have to redo them. Yeah. No, I, I mean, think- efficiency. efficiency is so important. And we can bog ourselves down by spending 90% of our time on 10% of what no question can be done. I don't think people understand the benefit of letting people do the thing. <laughs> I really yeah. don't. And it is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I think also it's a great line in the movie Devil's Advocate where Al Pacino says, you know, you're carrying all those bricks, put down the bricks. Who are you carrying them for? Right. I am of the opinion that I finally made peace with the fact that I don't give a shit what other people think. It's right? tough. I, right? It's hard. It's hard to learn, but but if I what other people think of me is none of my business. The only people whose opinion matter to me are my kid, my parents, my girlfriend, maybe the occasional client. I don't worry about it otherwise. I think that's some advice that's going to resonate really well on this podcast because there are a lot of creators um, with the shorty words that, and, and I've been having discussions and that has been one of the running themes in discussion is when can you do this and also stop caring about what other people think, right? Because putting content out into the world, you want it to be successful, right? There is a dopamine rush, right? So you seek that out. But when do you come to peace with just accepting, hey, you know, it's going to be good or it isn't? I think, though, you get to the point. If you only have a finite amount of time on this earth. Yeah. I've never met one person who looked back on it and said, darn, I didn't worry about bullshit enough. (laughs) Right? You know, I don't want to sit there and and think about, I don't want to spend my time worrying. And I've, I've spent years in therapy yeah. getting through this. I don't want to sit, if I have success, I don't want to waste that success. If I have a thousand people in the audience who are cheering for me, I don't want to waste that success by looking at the one person who's not standing for the standing ovation. Mm. I don't know his story. He might be a paraplegic. Yeah. But I used to be, I just noticed that guy and that would ruin everything. for me. And I think that's a common thing early in career too. Um, you know, just wanting to feel like you belong in the room, acceptance, imposter theory, all of those things. Um, yep. Let's take a quick break and then come. Money management, like a lot of things in my life, currently sits on a notes app as a thing I should be doing, but I'm not currently doing. Managing your money and accessing expert advice shouldn't be hard, and that's why It's No Fluke is proud to partner with Wave. Wave offers an easy-to-use suite of money management tools for creators in one place, streamlining your bookkeeping and saving you major time. 
Plus, when you create a free Wave account, you'll get a free personal 20-minute session with one of Wave's bookkeeping coaches, normally priced at $99. It's not a sales call. You can ask any questions you have about bookkeeping and get expert advice. The goal is to help you feel confident and in control of your finances. Spots are limited. Don't wait. Visit waveapps.com slash noflu to claim your free coaching session. That's W-A-V-E-A-P-P-S dot com slash N-O-F-L-U-K-E. That's waveapps.com slash nofluke. Peter, what what made you want to start writing books? I always like writing. Actually, I had a teacher in my mom always said I was a good writer, but you know she's mom. You know, not supposed to believe her. I had a teacher <laughs> in high school, Mrs. Glassman, who actually after my after I turned in my first paper, she actually went out and bought me a journal. And she's like, "You need to write this. You need to write in this every day." And you know, you're 14 years old, you think, "Oh, wants to do more work." But then over time, mm-hmm. I realized that um, she was doing this because she really believed that I was talented. And that to me was, was huge. I was able to, um, to, uh, realize that if I learned, if I type, because having dyslexia growing up means you're not, you're not writing without pain or without like a headache, but typing for the first time, my, um, my, uh, output could keep up with my brain. Yeah. And so. I love that I was able to do all this and writing just sort of became the thing that I would do when I was upset, when I was happy, when I was sad, I just, I just write. Um, and books, my first book I ever wrote was a book on PR and that someone actually reached out to me from Wiley. You know, Wiley's like the, Wiley's like the, the drug dealer in the high school who goes after the young kids and gives them pot Say, hey, if you ever want more of this, you know where to find me. You know, Wiley will just take a book from anyone. Accurate. I've been there. Yeah. Right. And they reached out and they're like, um, and so I wrote a book called, called Can We Do That? Outrageous PR Sense That Work and Why Your Company Needs Them. And hmm. it did well. Um, and then from that, I got a call from Pearson, who's pretty much like Wiley's bitch, you know, and they, they and then after that, I got an agent. And then I started, I had two books published with Paul Gray McMillan and then Fast Than Normal, which was the game changing book for me, was published by Random House. And the funny thing was, Fast Than Normal, great book on ADHD, came out in 2017. I mean, it's been called the Bible of, of, of ADHD and neurodiversity and productivity yes. with that. And it came out in 2017 and it's, the, it's still doing really well. I'm still doing royalties on it. Um, so about a year ago, when, when the book came out, everyone said, oh, my God, you should write a kid's book on ADHD. I'm like, yeah, okay. And then because of ADHD, it took five years. But <laughs> I remember this past last, last summer, I finally went back to Random House. I'm like, hey, I want to write a kid's book on ADHD. And, you know, or I want to do a, 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 a follow-up to Fast the Normal. I mean, I could fill two chapters alone on Zoom calls, right? You know, how to survive a Zoom call on ADHD. And um, <laughs> like, no, you can't. Like, why not? They're like, because Fast the Normal is still selling really well. Like, so you're punishing me. Because my book's doing well. I was like, yeah, you'll ruin the algorithm. Yeah, don't do that. Right? Sitting there going, you know, I just laid or fucked. Like one, I, something happened. I'm not sure which. I've been complimented, but I'm not allowed to write. So I'm like, screw it. I'm going to go out on my own. And so I, I self-published uh, The Boy with the Faster Brain. And it's doing really well. It's doing really well. I have a wonderful PR person who's uh, helping to promote it. It's been all over the place. It's it's helping a lot of kids. So it's exciting. It's number one, it's number one on Amazon when I looked yeah. this morning. 
Yeah. So good for the you. Um, what's your? <laughs> I'll get into in, into worst advice and other things, but what's your best cautionary advice? to creators and people who are probably capable or have the audience to get a book out there. But what's your cautionary advice about actually doing it? Just write. I mean, get shit on paper, first and foremost, right? That's that's 99% of writers never publish their book because they never take the time to actually get shit on paper. Oh, it's something I should do. Just sit the fuck down and write. But the cautionary advice I'd give to everyone, regardless of whether you're a writer or a creator or whatever you're doing, never believe your own press. At some point, you're going to do well. And you yeah. have a little bit of success, stop believing your own press. If you start believing your own press, you're screwed. Um, my favorite story the day I sold Help a Reporter Out, it was announced in DC at their conference. The next mm-hmm. morning, I flew home and I walk into the apartment. And in the elevator, I was living on the 30th floor. And in the elevator, I'm like, put some in. I'm like, man, I'm the shit. I got money in the bank. I just yep. sold this company for millions. I'm the bomb. For the first time in my life, I started to believe it. And I walked into the apartment. I had two cats at the time. And had a 25, I'd left them overnight, which I do all the time. They were fine. Had a 25, 25 pound bag of dried food. Brand new. It wasn't open. They'd managed to claw into it. Eaten as much food as they could. Drank as much water as they could. Walked over to the living room or the hallway rug and puked. And then it repeated the, both of them repeated this process about 10 times a piece. And hmm. I spent the first three hours as a millionaire on my knees, scrubbing out cat puke from the rug. And I believe this was supposed to happen. I believe this is the universe saying, great job, kid. Don't get cocky. Um, one of the cat's names was karma for Christ's sake. I mean, this was supposed okay. to happen. So I think yeah. that the number one piece of advice, don't believe your own press. Always stay humble, right? It is very easy to get caught up in the oh look at how amazing i am never let yourself do it it's the, it's the gary v effect once you do it um it's really hard to come out from that and, and everyone thinks of you as this blowhard who won't shut up well that too and also just like you can't with great highs come great lows right if your expectation is always that everybody is going to love me and then they don't then there's a crash to that, right? It's like having seven cups of coffee and then, you know, not expecting that you're going to have a crash. I, mean, I think the best the best piece of advice to that is just get get some sort of neurodiversity because you'll have such a horrible imposter syndrome from years of being told you're broken that you won't worry about that ever. Yes, 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 absolutely. Um, the other thing too with Faster Than Normal, right? That's book five, right? Faster so, Than Normal was book five, right? Yeah, so you went through four books kind of going through the process, right? It takes you until book five to get to the Bible, right? Do you get discouraged or were they all just kind of lessons and learnings that, you know, kept progressing? I wasn't discouraged. I enjoy writing. Um, I've gotten, you know, comments and, 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 you know, each book came with a higher and higher advance. Um, Problem is you get a higher advance. You got to earn that out before you start getting royalties. Yeah. And so, it's five years later and Fast Than Normal has only been getting royalties for the past year. Mm-hmm. Right? So mm-hmm. finally, but, but on the flip side, it finally earned out its advance. Proud of that. Yeah. So yeah. there's really that middle ground. You know, for me, it's just about doing what I enjoy doing, doing it over and over again and trying to improve on it. And I don't know if there's, I don't know if there's a, 
I don't know if there's anything more that I need to do. Mm. Right. I think that I'm the happiest when I do what I do and, and enjoy it. And I don't, again, once you stop caring what other people think, life becomes a lot easier. Yeah. I mean, it's slightly a position of privilege, right? Because not everybody can sell a company right? and have, have no, but, but everyone can not, everyone can stop caring about what other people think. Absolutely. Find the few people in your life that are, that are worth caring about their opinions and let everyone else go. Yeah. And in a Let's social media age, right? I mean, having that hyper local sense of who matters becomes a little tougher. And also, if, but I'd also say, let's, I would, I would go back to a point earlier. Let's face it. Um, if you, I live in New York City. Mm -hmm. I sold my company for several million dollars, but I, I wasn't selling my company for like Morgan Stanley money. Right? No. So I live in New York City. So yeah. it's when you say, Oh, it's so easy to say that now that you have millions in the bank. This is New York City. If I mm -hmm. move to Montana, I could mm -hmm. live peacefully in the rest of my life and do absolutely nothing. This is New York, my kid goes to private school. Yep. Okay, I have to pay my own health insurance. I'm not I'm not relaxing anytime soon. Accurate. I live in a city of 40,000 people. So I'm relaxing, but I get it. You know, there's, there's, different, there's different things, right? Um, well, although thing. I was like, in New York last week, but yeah, it's very true. I mean, you can get to the point where you want to, um, if I, you know, I've thought many times about leaving New York and I was born and raised here and I never thought I'd say that, but I've thought about leaving New York. Problem is I have two elderly parents who live three blocks away. I have a daughter who I split custody with. I'm not going anywhere for at least the next eight years. Yeah, that's how I feel. I mean, I'm I'm in Michigan because that's where my parents are, and I want to be near them, and I want to be near family. I, if I'm happy that you can get on a plane and go places and and get to the places you need to be and be in the rooms you need to be, but you can be from anywhere. Um, when you enter a room, are small rooms, big rooms, where do you feel most comfortable? I feel most comfortable on stage in front of twenty five thousand people, but. Just rare for when I turned people. fifty. When I turned fifty last August, my mother decided she wanted to throw me a birthday party. She called my best friend and she called my assistant, and they both said independently of each other, "That is the worst idea ever." He does not want that. <laughs> and my mother, my mother being a Jewish mother, said, "Okay, I won't throw you a birthday party. We'll throw you a birthday dinner. It's the same fucking thing." So, you know, you can't say no to mom. Never. So they threw me a dinner for twenty people, and. It was hell. Mm -hmm. Everyone there was close to me. I loved them all. But in situations like that, I have a very, very short social battery. Yes. And it started draining the second I walked into the room. Put me on stage where mm -hmm. I'm talking to 25,000 people and they're listening. I could speak for hours. Yeah. But having to make small talk. Yes. Over and over again is a neurodiverse brain's worst nightmare. I remember my daughter was at this dinner. And we finished the dinner and we finished dessert. And look, I said, honey, you look a little tired. She goes, no, no, I'm fine. I'm like, no, you're tired. We should leave. And I basically left my own birthday party. Yeah. I said, thank you all for coming. It's wonderful. I said, Jess is tired. So I'm going to take her home. But thank you so much. I love you all. Bye. I wasn't trying to be rude. I just, I had no more power. I couldn't mm -hmm. smile anymore. I couldn't, it is, 
the more I, 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 I grow up and the more I sort of start to understand myself, it is very possible that on some level, I am slightly on the spectrum of, of autism. Um, the difference is I've never thought of it as that. I've just thought of it as who I am and how, what I do. Sure. But yeah, I mean, put me on a stage and I'll just be the happiest person in the world. Put me in a room of six people where I have to make small talk and I'll be in the second bedroom playing with the cat. And <laughs> it just, it's one of those things that you learn. And so I understand who I am. I understand what I'm good at. I understand what I can do. I also understand when you need to uh, let me get the hell out of there. And I think that ties back to understanding what you're good at, what you're not good at. I'll give you a quick story. When I was in New York last week, I, um, so I'm doing the award show for the Shorty Awards. I'm doing the winner interviews. I am a terrible networker. I am a terrible small talker. I am completely bad at all of that. But you give me a situation in which I know you're coming to me. There's already a microphone. I can have a 45 second discussion with you. I can rattle those off. Boom, 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 boom. I can have hour long discussions with strangers. Um, but I need the system to initiate it, right? Because I can't just go up to random person and go, hmm, small talk. Hi, what do you do? That kind of stuff. It's just, I, I, I can't hit the ignition switch, but if I put, so I, I learned very quickly, if I write an article, if I do a podcast, if I, if I have the system in place, I can be successful, but I can't network. Those kinds of situations. I remember I went to one chamber of commerce thing when I was early in my career and you put the name tag on, you start mingling, you grab a drink. I'm like, Nope. I was out in 10 minutes. Couldn't do it. And I think, um, as I get older and you were talking about this, as I get older, I'm starting to recognize other people's communication and energy styles and trying to adapt better to those because sometimes I can be shot out of a cannon and that can also kind of drain the energy of somebody else. So I'm trying to be more mindful of, you know, viewing other people's energy. Um, Peter, what's the worst advice someone ever gave you? I had a, um, I had a college professor who told me I'd never do anything. I'd never be creative. I should just become an accountant. <laughs> Without a, major I, uh, happy. Huh? Without a major happy. Probably not. No. When, what was no. funny though is when I um when I uh was invited to Boston University to accept the Distinguished Alumni Award. Boom. I said, I'll come if you invite this professor. Oh. And they did. He didn't show up. <laughs> you went Michael Jordan on it. I like it. That's fun. Yeah. I think. I'm fortunate. I've never gotten terrible advice, or at least I think if I have, I just haven't heeded it. Um, there's a great line in the song, uh, by, by, by Baz Luhrmann, um, free to wear sunscreen, where he says, um, listen to everyone's advice, but be careful what advice you follow. Yeah. What's the worst advice you ever gave to someone? Well, I gave the advice to myself. I bought 10 Bitcoin at a hundred and sold them at a thousand. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. That's, but that, pro you know, did that feel good in the moment though? 
Of course it did. But yeah. thinking back on it now, I just really I haven't thought about it in months. And I just thought about it again. And now my day's ruined again. So thanks for that. But no, um, you're very, you're very welcome. it, I think, I don't know what bad advice I've given to someone. I, I don't, that's a really tough question. I don't know. I, I think that if I've given someone bad advice, I don't think they've ever told me. Um, that's the tough part about it. Yeah. I'm not sure. I don't know how to answer that. I like when I can ask questions and I, I can't get an answer now. This is actually like my new goal in the podcast. And somebody's going to be like, Jeff, this is an audio-based medium. You're supposed to get good answers out of people. I'm like, no, once in a while, I think a good question is one that can't be answered. But, awesome. you know, who knows? I mean, we're just starting. Peter, um, shamelessly plug all the things you're doing. <laughs> so what am I doing? The book is called, the newest book is called The Boy with the Faster Brain. Um, I occasionally coach. I'm not a huge fan of coaching, but I do help some people with ADHD. If you're, if you're an entrepreneur or if you're working in an environment where your ADHD isn't working for you, I could probably help you figure out how to do it better. Um, I am still a corporate keynote speaker. I'm, I used to just talk entirely about customer experience and that's changed a lot. I'm talking now a lot about, um, neurodiversity in the workplace. I just gave a keynote to in the past couple months to Morgan Stanley, Google, and Adobe all about, uh, neurodiversity right. in the workplace. So I would love to chat with anyone who wants to hear more about that. I am at Peter Shankman on all the socials except Twitter because I quit Twitter because I hate Elon Musk. And I'm a big believer that we still, we need to go back in time to 2016 where everyone was just spending the summer playing Pokemon Go and being really nice to each other. Um, oh, wouldn't that be nice? Yes, yeah, PeterShankman.com. And I, I, I welcome any communication. I'm always happy to chat. Thanks for doing this. Dude, my pleasure. All right. Appreciate it. I hope you learned something from two people with faster brains, that your differences aren't obstacles and may be your greatest advantage. That finding your own system, the one that helps you thrive, is paramount in creating success. That the best advice comes from people who are first willing to admit their flaws. They were never too old to learn and never too young to teach the world something. And like Peter said so perfectly, I've never met one person who looked back on all of it and said, darn it, I didn't worry about bullshit enough. Thanks to Peter Shankman, the boy with a faster brain is available now. It's no fluke. It's an original podcast from the Shorty Awards. It's hosted by me, Jeff Barrett, produced by Jun Soon. Cover an episode art by Chelsea Shizano. My best Peloton advice is invest in bike shorts and a $20 extra cushion seat from Walmart. Game changer. If you like this show, please leave a five-star review, share, and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any feedback or guest recommendations, send an email to info at shortyawards.com or DM Shorty Awards on Instagram. Take care.